Matthew chapter 7, I'll start reading at verse number 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. If you remember when we started looking at this sermon, one of the first things that Jesus said when he began this sermon is uh, in chapter 5, verse number 20, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been, of course, shocking to his audience. The Pharisees were known as the religious experts. They were the ones who everyone aspired to be. They were the ones that everyone looked up to, that modeled their lives after the Pharisees and uh, longed to be the disciples of the Pharisees. And Jesus says point blank, unless you are more righteous than they are, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the theme that's going through the whole Sermon on the Mount. He goes through the law one step at a time and shows the shortcomings of the human heart. Uh, he, see, he shows uh, how the Pharisees have twisted the law to make it something that they can keep uh, so that they can despise others and uh, praise themselves and pat themselves on the back. So the Pharisees had all sorts of rules about uh, loopholes for the, from the adultery laws and loopholes for the laws against murder and loopholes against uh, theft and loopholes against keeping your vows and keeping your contracts. Um, He's gone through all of that in this sermon. He's gone through it one step at a time. The gist of this, as he's coming to the end of it, he concludes by saying the same thing that Solomon said way back in the book of Proverbs. And I want to read uh, some of this in Proverbs chapter 2, where Solomon is saying the same thing. Jesus is saying it from a New Testament perspective, the exact same idea, except now it's revealed who this wisdom is. So in chapter 2 of Proverbs, there's this great sermon on wisdom where we are all encouraged to ask for wisdom. The assumption is none of us have it, and we have to ask for it because we're foolish by nature. And then he says in verse number 10 of Proverbs 2, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you, to deliver you from the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. 
For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So that you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. For the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. So you see what he's saying in this overall picture. Without wisdom, if we don't have wisdom, we will follow after evil. We will be ensnared by evil. Sin will capture our hearts. Sin will seduce us, will drag us down into death, and we'll be destroyed and ultimately cast out of the land, cast out of our inheritance. Or as Jesus said, I will say to you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. This is how Jesus is concluding this sermon. Only now we know that wisdom is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ who became flesh and dwelt among us. In him dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God has made him to be righteousness and wisdom, as the scripture says. And so the whole point of this sermon up until now is you might know all the right religious phrases and be destitute of righteousness. A man might even work miracles, raise tons of money for his ministry, convert thousands in preaching and prophesying and all that other stuff, but be destitute of love and any of the fruits that God seeks from his vineyard. That's the whole point of the sermon up until now. The problem with the Jews was that they lacked wisdom. But when they read passages like Proverbs, like so many of us do, we assume that we are the wise ones. But when we read it, it's the opposite that's true. We're not the wise ones. We're the foolish ones. We are not the wise, diligent workers who build our bank accounts and all of this. We're the opposite. We're the fools. This is why in the entire book of Proverbs, from the beginning to the end, we are encouraged, exhorted, begged, pleaded, warned, get wisdom. In other words, come to Christ. It's that desperate. All of Scripture, as Jesus said, from beginning to end, is about Christ. It's not about your bank accounts. It's not about, I, to confess, I get irritated every time I walk down the bakery aisle and see Ezekiel 4-9 bread. I want to put up a sign on proper exegesis. Like, Ezekiel is giving us a lesson on how to make bread. Um, I'm talking about missing the whole point of the passage. But that's what we do. We twist the scripture so it fits us because we assume that we're the righteous ones, that we are the wise ones. Jesus is cutting all of this away in the sermon because he loves us and wants to cure and cut out that cancer within our very soul. And so he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he concludes on the same thing. He now talks about his followers in the future. Those that will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we work all these miracles in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't believe that here he is referring to those who, wow, they really believed that they were saved, that they were Christians. I think they believed and knew that they were prideful, arrogant, and resisted God's law until their hearts were hardened their whole lives because God sends plenty of warnings. How can a man commit adultery? How can a man 
rail and rage against his neighbor? How can a man split churches and devour his livelihood, seeking after harlots and live in drunken debauchery and then go to church every Sunday and go, oh, Lord, Lord, and sing the hymns louder than anybody? This is what Jesus is talking about. Because we naturally think we have wisdom, we also naturally consider ourselves to be righteous and wise and loving. But as I said, our default position, the default is the factory settings. Because of the fall, our factory settings are the house on the sand. It's going to come crumbling down when the storm hits. And so because we think we're wise, we say to ourselves that if we get ourselves properly motivated, if we exercise our will just right, um, if we step out with all the right willpower, we can keep the law because we're just that good. We can do it. Anybody can do it. All we need is, is more preachers to encourage us. We just need more, better motivation, better education. But as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that's not the issue. The issue is our heart is corrupt. When you see what the law of God actually says, it goes to the heart and convicts us from our very core, which is why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, get wisdom. But we don't. Instead, our tendency is to substitute our own law. Um, I had mentioned something earlier in a, a, a conversation I had with people about worldliness, quoting Matthew Henry. Um, and the first idea that people have when they think of worldliness is the abuse of Charles Finney and that everything that flowed out of revivalism. That worldliness is uh, wearing uh, stylish dresses or wearing neckties or going to the theater or smoking or dancing or gambling or all of that other stuff. If the world does it, then we're supposed to avoid, avoid it. This isn't what worldliness means in the scripture. This is us gerrymandering the, the boundaries. Uh, we carve the boundaries of moral behavior to fit us and people like us and so that people we don't like are on the outside of it. And we can pat ourselves on the back and say, we are the righteous ones, we are the good ones. You are not quite as faithful and not quite as righteous as we are, and here's all the reasons why. Uh, you don't have the right sort of books. You don't have the right sort of clothes. You don't have the right sort of income. You don't have the right sort of money. You don't have on and on and on and on. This is what the Pharisees did. They divided the world between themselves, the righteous ones, and the sinners. We've talked about that before. You can't go through the Gospels without mentioning that theme over and over and over again. So Jesus, to all of us, is issuing first, in our text, a warning. He talks about the day coming. Uh, he says, in that day, uh, in our text. It's an interesting thing. It's a reference, and every Jew would have understood this, to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is Old Testament all the way through. If you want to do an interesting study, just run a word search on a computer program through how many references there are to the day of the Lord in the prophecies. The day of the Lord was promised when the Lord would come. He would bring judgment. He would bring salvation to his people and judgment on the wicked. Uh, and this is what all the Jews were expecting. And they never read too closely all the warnings. Uh, like this one in Amos 5, verses 18 and 19. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. 
What good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. All the Jews at that time thought, when God comes again, it will be wonderful. I'll sit on his right hand. Uh, my friend will sit on his left hand. We'll rule over all those sinners. And God will judge all of those wicked people and he'll send them on their way. All those people that are not like us, not part of our tribe. And the warning was, when God comes in judgment, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, no one will stand. So notice what Jesus is doing. First, he's warning that the judgment is coming, the day of the Lord. And he's echoing the same thing that Amos said, Isaiah said, Jeremiah said. When God comes in judgment, what are you going to do about your sins? There's none righteous, no, not one. And Jesus says, you know, you can use all the right phrases. This is an echo of Isaiah. They did everything right. They sang all the praises right. And God says, I'm sick of it. I'm going to say, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. The second thing Jesus says, and this would have been shocking. It's no wonder they started to plot his execution. He identifies himself with the Lord who will sit on the throne. It's God that is judging. It's Jesus who is judging. When the day comes, the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus Christ. Now this was foretold in the Old Testament when the day of the Lord had the son of David sitting on the throne as well as God sitting on the throne. Jesus fills both of those requirements. He is sitting on the throne in the day of the Lord, judging. Putting those ideas together, that Jesus is the one sitting in judgment and the day of the Lord is connected to his reign, The day of judgment and the consummation of all things and the salvation of the church is coming and it's in the hands of Jesus, the Son of God. But there's a new twist in the New Testament that was shadowed in the old but not fully revealed until the new. The day of the Lord is going to have two comings. Jesus is going to come the first time for salvation, for mercy, in love to show his love and his goodwill to the world. Because if he came in judgment, he would have destroyed all of them. And so now he's calling them all to repentance. But the day is going to come when he will come in judgment. The Pharisees were confused about this. And even at his trial, they said, are you the Christ? He says, I am. And so here is this bloodied, broken, weak man who's not resisting anything they're doing. They're about ready to turn him over to Pilate to be crucified and they cannot fathom Messiah like this. And Jesus said this, I am the Christ. After this you will see me descending in clouds of glory just as Daniel foretold. This is the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And this is good for us and something we need to remind ourselves of. Jesus' timing is absolutely perfect. If, when he comes in judgment, it's too late and not too late for repentance and not one of his elect will ever be lost. If he came in judgment 50 years ago, how many of us would be there? If he came in judgment 100 years ago, none of us would be there. Not one of his elect will be lost and so let us have patience as we wait for that day and not be too quick to call down judgment 
because that's not the spirit of this age, uh, the spirit of Christ. So Jesus is the judge. He is the one who is sitting on the throne in the day of the Lord, which is still coming. And the nature of this judgment, who, who will be judged and who will be cast away? It's not outward religious activities. It's not doing the best you can. It's those who hear and do the will of God. It's always been that way. In the context of the sermon, it's obedience from the heart, just as he described. No lust in the heart, no reviling, no calling your neighbor an idiot, keeping your word. All of these things that we fail on every single day. As the scripture says, we quote it in our catechism, or we, we uh, confess it, summarized in our catechism, the righteousness which can stand before God must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the divine law. Galatians says, Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things that are written in the law to do them. If you want to go by the route of the law, you have to do it perfectly from the moment you're born, and you've already failed that. If we're honest, which we can only be if we are awakened by the Holy Spirit, we'll look at ourselves, we look at the warnings of the day of the Lord, and we can properly conclude that we're in trouble. So what's the solution? Build your house on the rock. Wasn't there something in the Old Testament about getting something that would protect you from sin and death and misery and ruin? Oh yeah, wisdom. This is where wisdom comes in. Christ came, the wisdom of God became flesh to lead us to the path of righteousness, to lead us to dwell in the land, to give us that which we lack. And so therefore, the, the charge to us is diligently seek after wisdom. And as we know in the New Testament, the wisdom of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. In chapter 8 of Proverbs, wisdom is personified. I was with the Lord from before the foundation of the earth. He possessed me in all of his ways. And then John says, the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Get wisdom, come to Christ, abide in Christ, build your house on the foundation. It's all different ways of saying the exact same thing. Build your life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in his righteousness alone. Follow the Lamb wherever he leads. Ask daily for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or in Old Testament terms, ask daily for wisdom in everything that you do. Without wisdom, all we can do is the outward show. Lord, Lord, we can prophesy even. But inside it's decay and death because only wisdom leads to life. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 through 24, Paul writes, Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the Jews seek a sign, like Moses in the wilderness, this outward show of power. Uh, they thought that if Jesus, when the Messiah comes, there'll be this grand outward show of power that would defeat the Romans. But th just like God drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. So God's power was saved, or, or seen. But how many of those that saw it happen 
survived, made it to the promised land. They didn't believe. Their hearts were full of death and madness. They immediately turned and worshipped golden calves. The power, the sign that the Jews sought, couldn't change a heart. It didn't have the power to do that. The Jews sought, or the Greeks sought wisdom. We all know about the philosophies of the Greeks. And you read some of the most brilliant stuff by Plato, or as Plato was recounting what Socrates taught. And you go through this absolutely brilliant dialogue about wisdom, and then halfway through it, he'd talk about uh, being attracted to the servant boy uh, coming in. And that was all just right and proper with him. It didn't change his heart either, it didn't bring life. And the Greeks died just like everyone else did in madness and in ruin, in chaos. But we, Paul says, preach Christ crucified. And then he says he's the power of God and he's the wisdom of God. He fulfills both of those requirements. To get power, to get wisdom, come to Christ. Or build your house on that foundation. The house that the Jews built on signs and power and wonders fell. It collapsed. That's what the Old Testament's about. The house that the Greeks built was soon very quickly destroyed. Alexander died. His generals spent the next 400 years fighting with each other. Death and misery. In every age... There's the blustering person, the master of wisdom and prudence and insight, sarcastically speaking. And then the curtains are pulled back and you see that behind the mahogany walls and the ivory towers, there's death and decay and ruin and the bodies are piling up. We're seeing that in our day. And it's always the same thing. We think we can build the kingdom of God with the same power that the Jews thought would build it or the same wisdom that the Greeks thought would build it wealth, power, numbers, coalition, those houses will always collapse. For the storm that comes is always greater than any human strength. The greatest storm there is is a storm in our own hearts. Don't ever underestimate the power of sin. The power of sin is absolutely tremendous. You're not strong enough. That's why Solomon said, get wisdom. Build your house on the right foundation. And what I mean by that, it's not this fabulous secret. It's been revealed to us in very, very clear words. Christ crucified for us. He is our righteousness. He is our life. He is our inheritance. He is our longing. He's our desire. He's our beauty. He's our goodness. He is our acceptance before God. He's the one that fills us with his spirit. He's the one that causes us to grow in love and joy and peace and long-suffering. And he's good. He went to the cross to take the penalty of sin in order to pour out his spirit on us. So will he not pour out his spirit on us if we just ask? That's the gospel. That's the foundation, the only foundation that will stand when the storm comes. And that foundation... I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again for those that have missed it. The Hebrew word for a solid foundation on rock that's firm and steadfast and sure, the Hebrew word is amen. 
And you can change that word into different forms, make it an adverb or make it an adjective or make it a noun, but the root of it is amen. It means that which is solid and firm. To put it in one form, you say it can be translated belief. To believe is to say God's words are solid and sure and I can stand on them and never fall. When you amen God's words, then you are amend. You are established. It's translated that way. That's what Isaiah said uh, to Ahaz. If you won't believe, you won't be established. If you don't stand on the solid ground, you'll fall when the storm comes. And Ahaz did because he didn't believe. He didn't stand on the solid foundation of the promise of God. To amen the promises of God is to be amended by God, to be established by God. This is the rains descend, the floods came, the storm came, and the house stood, for it was founded on the rock. And as Paul said, and that rock was Christ. To build your life on anything else is an exercise in foolishness. But that's our default. What do we think is going to hold us up when the storms come? The problem is no matter what you build your hope on, the storm will always be bigger. Because there's ultimately only one foundation that will stand. Christ crucified and risen from the dead according to the scriptures. His foundation is the one that will never fail. He is the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. And therefore when we abide in him, I'm going to combine all of these images. To abide in him, to uh, uh, come to his fold as a sheep, to rest in his arms, to uh, uh, enter into his kingdom, to be engrafted into him, and to get wisdom. All the same thing. It means to be so united by the Holy Spirit to Christ himself that although he's in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And since no one can pull Christ off of his throne, no one can pull us. That's the solid foundation. Our only righteousness is his. Our only light is his. Our only solid ground is his. And that we can heartily amen. And then believe that God will establish us even in the storms of this life as he tears us off of all the other foundations that our heart wants to go towards. With that, we will close. That finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm going to take a break from Matthew. I don't know where I'm going to go from there, uh, but it will be fabulous. So um, we'll take a break from Matthew, and um, we'll see you next time. Let's pray, and then we'll open it to any questions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word we thank you for the solid foundation on which we can build our lives we pray that you would establish us that you would fill us with your wisdom that you would direct our steps and guide us at last to our everlasting home safe in your arms in jesus name amen